0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York City jazz drummer and composer Ulysses Owens Jr. We had a long conversation about his unique path in jazz and his latest 2021 CD, Soul Conversations. His eagerly awaited big band debut on Outside In Music with his new 19-piece outfit known as the UOJ Big Band. Originally from Jacksonville, Florida, he has always had a passion for the music. In his hometown, his family founded Don't Miss a Beat, Inc., a nonprofit organization empowering young people to dream big and give back to their communities through a blend of musical, artistic, academic, and civic engagement programming. Along with his recording life, he was asked by Wynton Marsalis to join the esteemed faculty at the Juilliard School to serve as small ensemble director. He's been there for over five years. Enjoy the story.
1: I'm wonderful, man. I've been looking forward to this. Me too, man. Thanks for taking a minute out. I appreciate it. Of course.
0: The first thing I want to
1: ask you is before we get into the artistic expression and construction of Soul Conversations, talk to me a little bit about this coming out during a pandemic. Not so much a timetable, but the fact that it's coming out now. We can't tour and do any of that, but it's one of the few ways you can directly connect with fans.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I got you know my my management team. Everybody kind of has been thinking for a long time, like about this launch. You know, and when I talked to the folks at Outside In, you know, we were like, when do we release it? And initially we thought that by May the pandemic would completely be over and, you know, we it it just it would kind of be an afterthought. I think by May obviously more people will be vaccinated and, and um what have you. But I but I do think that people are open to hearing more music because I think people are sitting at home more. We still are like we're moving around but we're still more like just available to take in things versus, I think, before in the market, you know, unless you were a major player, people just didn't listen to your music. So um, I don't know. I kind of think it works for me um, that it's coming out right now because I think that people have time to pay attention to it in ways that they didn't before. So, yeah, and then, I mean, touring with a big band, man, I mean, that's expensive. I don't know that I would have been able to do that anyway. I mean, probably ideal scenario, I would have had a, a run at Disney's or something, you know, but I, I kind of think it works. I definitely didn't want to release any music last year in the heat of it, but I
1: feel like as we're coming out of it, I think it will work
2: for us. So we'll see.
1: This is your first (laughs) release on on Outside and Music. Talk to me about what it's like to be on a new label and to have such a great big band album out. Man, well, you know, first
2: of all, this big band album, which I'm sure we'll dig into it a little bit, you know, as uh, throughout this discussion, this big band album has been a labor of love. It It has been, you know, matter of fact, this year, 2021, has actually been a year where I have released or am releasing things that have been kind of in my sphere for years. You know, one is the big band album. Two is my entrepreneurship book. You know, I'm also launching a festival. So, like, I feel like 2021, though, is the pandemic is kind of the year that I'm able to pr- kind of release things into the world that I've been planning on. So, you know, working with Outside In Music, um, I knew that this record has been in the me- sort of in the making for, like, over three years. And I recorded it, actually, 2019 at Dizzy's. And uh, Nick Spencer and I have always been good friends, and I love what he's doing over there. And he's already kind of been courting me. And I even had other major labels courting me for this record because everybody had kind of been hearing the band and hearing about the band because we've been playing in New York, you know, for three years now, you know, doing like a week. So anyway, but what I liked about Nick was that he and Alan, they had a unique vision. Because I remember when Alan had a conversation with me, he said, Ulysses, we really want this album – on this label, you know, and he listed all the stuff that he wanted to do, and I said, Alan, all of that is very typical to me, and it's very normal, and I don't want to do anything normal. I want to have a completely unique, out-of-the-box strategy. So if you guys don't want to be out-of-the-box, then don't call me (laughs) more." And so Nick called back, he was like, we want that. And so that's why I'm with them because I feel like everything that we're doing, how we're approaching it, um, also the fact that we're releasing it, when we're releasing it, the fact that we're releasing a big band album in 2021, I mean, there's so many things about this that are unique, but I feel like the label is up for the challenge, and I just like what they represent. I also like who, who else is on the roster. They're not looking after big, you know, big names, and, and they're not trying to be what they're not. They're looking at sort of ushering in the next dimension or the next realm of great jazz art, and you know, multiracial, multigender. Like, I think they are the new record label model um so anyway i love working with them and and the album has definitely been a long time coming man i mean this i mean this big band i mean first of all it stems back to my work with new century jazz quintet which was a band that i formed uh probably almost close to 10 years ago we used to tour to ham primarily um and so when i first started my big band it used to be called the new century uh big band because it was sort of an extension of new century jazz quintet which was first faces of the new century playing jazz music and so then as things with new century kind of transitioned i said well i'll take it from being the new century bands and not just the usc's only junior big band but yeah man i mean this has been sort of a legacy that we've been into i mean in new century it was all about sort of r lakey and, and mogul miller and tanis Blanchard, like basically like these, these bands that were playing the music and keeping the traditional spirit alive but with a new sort of folk and that was what the focus of new century was and then that's what the focus of the ulysses Owens junior big band
1: so again it's been this long time coming you know it's, it's, it's a project that has, uh, has some very very deep roots so talk to me about the big band the conversation the assemblage of all of these talents that made this wonderful sound
2: so stemming from the whole new century idea mike Deeds, who's a very dear friend of mine and also associate producer mike Deeds said to me ulysses you're no longer the baby on the band saying
0: you're not an elder
2: statesman, but but you have played with some great cats, and it's now time for you to kind of step into that role of mentor. I kind of was doing that in New Century. You know, I, also between that time, I, you know, I'm a professor at Juilliard. I've been there for over five years. So it was shifting from, you know, being the baby to now being a guy that people are like, so, Ulysses, what do you think about it? So when it was time to form this big band, Mike and I said, okay, here's what we want. We want our colleagues, so I wanted to go – and have people in the band that were now like me and D's. We were once young guys and now we're professors. And now we're out here in the industry. So the band is probably made of, a, of about 20, 30% of, like, my peers. Then D said, Ulysses, you now have an opportunity to introduce to the world the next dimension of jazz young great." So the other part of it is, like, I got a kid in the band, Wyatt, who on the record, he was 17 years old. His parents were in the audience. So, you know, the other part is this new generation that we're kind of saying, Hey, here's how you play this music. Um, and then the other facet of it is multi um, gender as well and, and, and multinational, you know, multi you know, um, because I, I felt like jazz, particularly in big bands, they're either like all white or they're all black. <laughs> and I was like, Well, where's the Asian community? Where's the Hispanic community? Where are the women? Where are the people that you know identify as different sexual orientation? But where is that in the jazz big band? And so Mike and I really sat down and we really looked at, first of all, who are the best players, you know? So we wanted the best players. And then after that, then we started saying, okay, we want to make sure everyone is represented in this band. And so I never forget the the first week we played at Disney's, people were like, how the hell did you get a band that sounds as good as it sounds but looks the way it looks? Because everybody had been saying for your band to sound the way it sounds, it can't look that way. And I said, well, first of all, I'm putting my heart and soul behind this. So, and I'm playing you know, I play with the Basie band, play with McBride, I play with all those cats. So you you get a good drummer and some good arrangements, and you can make a band swing. So anyway, that's sort of the makeup of, of the band, and, and everybody's pretty much from the ages of about 17 to about 40 years old.
1: You're originally from Jacksonville, Florida. You know, and I always think that, you know, taking on a big band is a very unique jazz specimen. Talk to me a little bit about your beginnings in jazz growing up in Florida, kind of how all this began? Well,
2: you know, it's funny you say that because growing up in Florida was great because I, I didn't get a – you know, I wasn't a jazz baby. You know, when I got to Juilliard, it was funny because all of my colleagues were jazz babies, you know, meaning they were sort of indoctrinated into this music. You know, they heard Miles before the age of 10 years old. I didn't hear Miles Davis um, until, you know, I probably like 13, 14, but I didn't really, really hear him until I was 16. So growing up in Florida, I was exposed to gospel music. That's the first thing because my family is full of a bunch of preachers and, and gospel singers. My mother's a choir director, and that's actually how I got exposed to the music because um, we, you know, grew up very religious, very committed to the church. So that was kind of my beginnings. But then my father, being from rural Arkansas, is, is an incredible uh, soul music aficionado. So he loves you know Otis Redding, all those cats. But then because of his R&B love, he also was into like sort of the jazz fusion. So I remember combing through records and seeing like the Crusaders and Ramsey Lewis and like all of that. And so by the time I was maybe 12, 11 years old, he started taking me to the Jacksonville Jazz Festival. And so that was where like the idea of like jazz started changing and, or, or sort of being introduced. Then I had a cousin introduce some Oscar Peterson records and then I think my first love of jazz was actually Jazz Fusion, where I fell in love with the Yellow Jackets, and I got to see them perform live here in town. And, um, but things didn't really take off until my first introduction to playing jazz was actually their big band. <laughs> it was in high school. So, I, you know, my ninth grade year at the School of the Arts, auditioned for the uh, jazz big band. I didn't really know what big band was. But they said, hey, if you're a new student, you have to audition for everything. And my first year I literally get into the top big band. I was the first freshman to ever make it into the top big band and had never, I didn't even know what the hell it was. So I get thrown into this big band and the director's like, hey, welcome. And that's where I start getting introduced to all these great, you know, Count Basie charts and Duke Ellington and, you know, Mark Taylor and, and you know, all these sort of, you know, like my, my director was definitely a Basie head. So now you know, and 14 years old, I'm playing big band, which for me wasn't different than what I was doing on Sunday morning. Because I always say to people, you know, particularly the black charismatic church musically, um, is very similar to jazz. And so I feel like you know, playing behind a choir is the same for me as playing behind a big band.
1: <laughs> it's just
2: it's yeah. different. It's different music. So anyway, so that was how I got introduced to it. And then obviously later on, when I decided to go to, um, I was going to go to Manhattan School of Music, and I got introduced to John Riley. He introduced me to Philly Joe Joan and, you know, and then sort of the rest is history. But then I ended up going to Juilliard because I heard a Lewis Nash record. And I was like, I want to study with that guy. And, and, you know, so, you know, again, a lot of – I'm keeping out a lot of details. But, yeah, so that's – then once I got to New York, everything was like history. I mean, then the other thing with Big Band I I want to mention, at Juilliard I played Big Band and it was cool. But then uh, within a few years I got the call from Count Basie's band. Uh, Butch Miles was leaving. And so my friend was in the band, and I was, uh, I think I had just graduated. And, uh, Dee, uh, who was managing the band, who was like Count Basie's niece, she's like, Lizzie, I hear you're this young drummer that knows how to play a big band. We, you know, we want you to, we want you to take over from Butch. And I was like, oh my God, I would love to. Well, what was supposed to be like that phone call and turn it into a tour, I didn't hear it from them again for another, like, year. So finally they called me and they're like, Lizzie, sorry, you know, we're actually not ready for you. Butch decided to stay on, stay on a little later. So um, we want you to come out and do a gig. So I went out to California, did some gigs with them and Nina Freelon, and they are like, Ulysses, we want, like, we want you to be the next drummer for Count Basie. Well, at that time, Kurt Elling had just taken me out on tour and said, hey, Ulysses, I want you to be my drummer. And everything on my website is yours in terms of dates. So I was like, do I choose Kurt Elling, who probably has way more work, or do I choose the Basie band, which at that time was kind of going through a management transition, so I went to – Fast forward, I started working with Christian McBride, and he wanted to sort of retool his big band, because um, he was like, you know, I really got all these charts I want to write, and he's like, man, have you ever played big bands? I said, yeah, man, I was going to be the bassy band drummer. He was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, man, I'm getting ready to start my big band back up. I'm going to make you the drummer. I'm going to put new people in the band, and we, we basically played at Iridium, and I think six months later, we did the record, and then we won a Grammy. <laughs> so it went from oh. like... You know, it went from me, like, Big Band kind of being this thing that, you know, I did in high school, I did in college. Then all of a sudden, the Basie Band, that didn't kind of work out. Then I started working with Christian McBride. And then it's now like, oh, Ulysses is a Big Band drummer. And so now fast forward, you know, my G basically said to me, hey, Ulysses, you're great at all these other things, but, like, I really think you have a very specific vibe that's special with Big Band. And I think there's a way that you communicate your spirit and, and the spirit of the music in ways that you don't do in other things. So I really think you should do that. So I would say this record is really my chance to kind of give myself to the music in a way that I think is really, really special.
1: You know, yeah. just in that story right there, you mentioned a lot of really heavy cats, from Kurt Allen <laughs> to Christian Price, <laughs> You know, Lewis Nash and yeah. Marcellus was mentioned prior. What, yeah. did you, what have you learned from all these heavy cats throughout your career that has in turn helped you as a teacher lead that to the younger generations?
2: I'll tell you, you know, I'll give you something from each one of them, and I don't do this often, but I'll give it to you. Winston always said to me, be a serious, and obviously you can get, I'll give you the the rated R version. You can write the PG version or whatever. Winston said, be a serious motherfucker. (laughs) Because there's a lot of non-serious people in the world. He said, you that's one of the things I love about you. He said, you've always been serious since the day I met you at 18. And so from what I learned, be serious and be unapologetic about being serious about this music because it deserves our, our true love and it deserves our all. So, one, McBride taught me, be one of the greatest musicians in the world. Seek to play that instrument in a way that nobody can fucking play it. And 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 that, he sort of taught me trial by fire. Like, so McBride's not a talker, um, on like, when it comes to music. But his thing is, follow me. <laughs> so... He really taught me. No matter what you feel, no matter whatever, like play your like like. Don't complain. Don't don't get caught up in all the semantics. Play your instrument and put your heart and soul into your instrument every night. You do that, that will transform people, and that transformation will open up doors for you. That's what McBride taught me. Um, Right. Kurt Kurt Elling taught me that you have to have a goal. (laughs) You know, he says Ulysses from the time I was in Chicago. You know, in seminary school, um, and he had a chance to go down to the Green Mill and start his thing. He said, I always had a goal that I wanted to be a jazz singer. He said, and I didn't, I didn't care about whether it was going to be Grammys or anything. He said, because I didn't know of any of that. But what I knew was, he said, I'd heard John Hendricks. You know, I'd heard Mark, uh, get, get my man's last name, um, who, who's a big uh, influence on Kurt. Um, oh, that's going to bug me. But anyway, Mark, Grayson, Mark Murphy. You know, I heard Mark Murphy. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, he'd heard Sheila Jordan, you know, he'd heard, you know, spent, spent some time with John Hendricks. So his thing has always been Ulysses, when you decide what you want to be and whatever that is, whatever the packaging of that is, like, stick to that goal and be it, uh, again, unapologetically. Um, so yeah, th- those are, those are a few old things that some of the, I mean, it's so much more, but
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll leave yeah. you three. Yeah, so that's good. And. You know, you already mentioned the Grammy. You've gotten accolades in your life. I don't yeah. want to know about the best award you got, but what <laughs> what accolade? What accolade did you get that to totally for you? You didn't see it. You didn't expect it, and it's remained special.
2: Um, man, I have to be honest. I think the first Grammy. I mean, I I mean, like I told you, I did not know. Like, I'm a guy from Jacksonville, Florida, that moved to New York, and I wanted to be the next Lewis Nash. Which meant for me was playing as much as I could and touring as much as I could. That was that was all I thought that I would do. When Kurt Allen called me, we had done his record, John Coltrane, uh, dedicated to you the music of Johnny John Coltrane and Johnny Hartman. And so I remember we done the record, we recorded live at Lincoln Center, I was already on Cloud Nine because you know, we recorded live at Jazz and Lincoln Center. You know, we recorded it for Concord Universal, you know. So if, if I died and went to heaven that year, I was already good, right? Yeah. Then he called me that December. I never forget. I was sitting in in Harlem. I was having food with friends, and he called and he says, "Ulysses, we got nominated for a Grammy." And I said, "What? Like, what do you like? What do you mean? Like, I was already just happy, you know, being in your band, being on the road with you, being able to like make a steady income that I could afford an apartment, you know, <laughs> like then I was seeing the world. Then you let, then you record me because you know for a for a young jazz musician. You know, I spent many years being the sub guy, where I subbed for so many people, but nobody ever would record with me, you know. Um, so to have a guy that says, okay, i going to record, and then now that recording is now getting the attention of, of, of the Grammys, then fast forward, you know, four or five months later, and we won, that is something that, like, completely changed my life, because it was no longer Ulysses, a jazz musician out here hustling, it was now the word Grammy was associated with my name. So that that completely blindsided me and forever changed my life and forever changed my career. Um, Yeah, so I I did not expect that, nor was I even looking for
1: that. So the one thing about being in this quarantine, pandemic, lockdown world is that it's been an intense time, I think, for everyone to look within to learn things about ourselves and the world around us. What did you discover about yourself and the world that you didn't realize or it wasn't that much into focus prior to all of this happening?
2: Well, I, there's, a, there's a few things. One, um, I think it was meant for me to be still. I, you know, I always say to people, this pandemic sat me still uh, in a way that I had not been still in over 15 years. I had not been in one city for more than a month in 15 years. So that was, so that was a whole psychological thing. Then two, it made me approach things that, I, that I've been saying I was going to do but I never took the time to do. Like, I've been saying I was going to, like, build a little studio. I've been saying I was going to, you know, learn pro tools. I've been saying that I was going to, like, you know, create, sort of do the things that would make me a little bit more self-sufficient like sufficient artistically. And um, also, so anyway, I had time to do that. I have a little production studio here. I've learned all those things. I'm now, you know, sending files all over the world, producing, you know, various things from, all from here. So that was a huge thing Um And then I would say the other part of it, was I fell back in love with music because I think that, the pan- you know, before the pandemic, music, you know, especially when you get to a certain point when you start really building a career, everything about music becomes career-driven. So it becomes, okay, well, I'm going to make this record because I want this career accolade or I want to play with this person because it'll push me up to do this or I want to do this because then it'll give me more bookings. Like, so you kind of shift into this like more methodical place. And with the pandemic came and it was no work and not only was there no work, none of us knew when the hell work was gonna come back. So it made us we couldn't even be like, Yeah, you know, I mean it's it, you know, we're sitting home for six months, but we'll be back. It was like we don't even know when we'll be back. So that made me say, Okay, you know what, if I'm never able to get on stage again, do I still love this music? And I and the and the answer was yes. And I felt deeper in love with it than I'd ever been in love with it, to the point where I started a jam session here in Jacksonville back in October because I said, listen, I don't know if I'll ever be back on stage in the way that we've been, but I got to play every week. I, I need to play, and I need to create for people. And so, yeah, this, this pandemic made me fall back up with music and particularly playing jazz and, and separate from whatever the monetary gain game or, or, game or career gain could be.
1: You know, obviously you mentioned some very key things about learning pro tools and some technical yeah. things, and I've heard yeah. a lot of things you know, when this all began, I did a lot of interviews, and I always I kind of had an epiphany thinking of all the artists in the world, jazz musicians are the most adept to probably capture what's going on now because this is improv. This is getting mm-hmm. thrown into the unknown. This yeah. is like, taking, <laughs> yeah. you know what? This is taking the the upside down and turning it into a way that people are going to really want to hear in a, in a very auditory sense otherwise. So how do you think the jazz world will emerge stronger once we get out of this COVID world? What's going to be the strengths of the world?
2: Well, I don't know. I don't, you know, I have a lot of questions about the jazz world because I, first of all, I think that we are stuck. You know, Joe, I always use the quote that Joey Baron, great drummer gave me many years ago and it. And I love it. And he said, jazz is a museum and a jail. And, you know, we are a museum because we're stuck in many ways in the past. Yes, we revere our, our, those that came before us, but we're almost trapped by it. You know, even to the point where we're like, oh, have you checked out so and so? She sounds just like Ella. Have we checked out she sounds just like Blake. Blakey and Ella have been dead for decades. Why are we still comparing some new person to someone that's been dead? They, we, they don't do it in any other industry except for jazz. They don't say, oh Beyonce is great because she's the next Michael Jackson who's dead. No. Beyonce is amazing because she's Beyonce. Right? So I feel like jazz uh, is is very antiquated and we're very trapped by our own beauty and of history. So will we make it through the pandemic or on the other side of it? I do think we will. The question is what direction will we go? Because I think we were already lost before the pandemic. And then I think now, you know, you have a lot of people who lost work and lost, you know, their resources. So I don't, I don't know where jazz is going to be. I also think that we have to deal with a major technological deficiency that our our genre had that no other genre had. You know, we, you know, everybody else was already engaging in certain things technologically, but jazz musicians, like, we relate to the party because we thrive, us and classical musicians, because we thrive so much on the the audience to audience connection. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what we'll do. I mean, I know what I'm going to do, but we'll see what we're able to do. I I do think that jazz education will preserve it on some level. But I wonder if we will become more specialized and more niche because, you know, when things open back up, you know, everything is going to go to the majors. So to answer your question, I don't know where we're going to be (laughs) because I already think we needed to retool our model.
1: Yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, I I dig it. So. You know, let's say you have a dream tonight. You run into your younger self, like around the time before you went to New York and you were becoming a professional, and you could give your younger self one piece of advice based on what you've learned throughout all these years. What would it be? Keep
2: being you. That, I, I, I would literally say this to, to my younger self. Keep being you. Don't change anything because everything, everything that you think you want and even the things that you don't even imagine that's for you are on its way to you. So just keep being you right on why do you love jazz i love it because it is the greatest art form in the entire world because it encompasses everything in the world right so jazz first is the study of music right to study and love this music is to study the principles and the form like everything else right so so i first love it i love jazz because it connects to to the study of music then i love jazz because then it breaks every rule in music Right, right. like you study all this shit to figure it out but then you realize the greater you get at it you actually let go of the structure and then that's what life is right like life is all about you know you get you know you're fortunate to have a good parents they sort of teach you what to do and then you spend your adult life sort of deciding for yourself what things you're going to actually do and create and then within jazz is freedom and then within jazz is the connection to the audience like because of because of jazz i have connected with people on a whole other frequency of life that I would not have connected in or on had I done something else. So I think jazz is the greatest thing because it's structure, it's freedom, it's personal expression, um, and it's beauty, and and it belongs to us. And as an African-American man, you know, it comes from my ancestors. So, yeah, that's why I, I love it for all those reasons. And also if that you, I can't explain it. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I, also well love, I, I also love the part of jazz that I will never understand. It's something that I will always be going after, and that I love as well.
1: Yeah, totally. So if you could get into a time machine, jazz, DeLorean, and go back in time, what show, what music, any musician would you see, and who would you want to talk to? I think I'd love to sit
2: down. I think I I, I, I would probably... I'm torn. I think it would be either sit down with Art Blakey or I'd sit down with Ben Carter because I think that both of them were were obviously prolific musicians, but they were business people and they were paradigm shifters. And they also had a forward concept of education and that's who I am. So I would love to like sit down with Blakey and be like, okay, like are you actively like building this like education, like institution in your band or you're just, you just trying to keep cats in your band. Like, is this an active thing you're trying to do, or to like Betty? Like, are you actively like hiring all these young guys so you can train them, or or you're just hiring them because they, <laughs> you know, like like what like I love because what they created were institutions and single, you know, and Blakey's band particularly. Every person, with the exception of probably like Herbie or like Pat Metheny, but just about every person, you know, of note. Um, and jazz today is connected to that Blakey legacy, you know, and between Blakey and Miles and Betty Carter, just about every influential jazz musician came from one of those three institutions, including Chick Korea, including Herbie, like everybody. So it'd be interesting like, have that conversation with them and understand like what did they do or what did they sacrifice or what did they choose or not choose to kind of be the, the incubator's, for really amazing talent so yeah it would it would be Blakey or Betty
1: everyone has a perception of you your family your friends fans students but you're the one living your life yeah. who do you think you are
2: um I think that I am a very serious person with a purpose living unapologetically but with a really 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 big heart uh, but I'm also very very driven so um, and and I've had a lot of challenges in my life, and 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 um and and so because of that, I'm very driven, and I know that nothing will stop me unless I allow it to stop me. So that's who I think that I am.
1: Perfect, man. Thank you. You listen. Good luck with, that thing, you. with the album and the return to the stage. Thank you, sir.
2: Cool, man. Take care, brother.
0: Take care, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Florida, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Ulysses for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.